are listening to True Crime Twins, a true crime podcast hosted by Chloe and Melina Cantor. True Crime Twins is distributed by Glassbox Media and is part of the Crawlspace Media family. Welcome back to True Crime Twins, where we use our educational and occupational backgrounds in criminology and medicine to tell you crime stories. I'm Chloe. And I'm Melina. Today, we are telling you the story of a missing mother named Patricia Lee Otto, who disappeared on August 31st, 1976, from her home in Lewiston, Idaho. Patty was 24 years old at the time of her disappearance and was 5'3 and 140 pounds with blonde hair and hazel eyes. She was last seen wearing a white shirt and red pants. Her husband, who's now deceased, Ralph Otto, claimed that they got into an argument and she stormed out and never came home. He told their two children, Natalie and Suzanne, that Patty did not want to be a mother anymore. According to Patricia's daughter, Suzanne, who was three years old at the time, a violent argument ensued that night, and she last saw her mother being dragged away by the throat. Suzanne, now an adult and a mother herself, has combed through the investigative files and started her own investigation into the disappearance of her mother and has uncovered some truly fascinating information. In this first part of our multi-part series, On the disappearance of Patricia Lee Otto, we interview Suzanne, who gives us case background and lots of useful information regarding this case. We can't speak highly enough of Suzanne. I think that she is so strong and intelligent and eloquent. She's the only one left in her nuclear family. Her mother's missing, her father's passed away, and her sister tragically passed away as well. And now she stands alone in this fight and isn't really getting much help from authorities. But we stand by you, Suzanne. Thank you so much for speaking with us. And we sincerely hope that you find answers and justice for your beloved mom. start off, would you mind telling us a little bit about your mother, what you knew about her, what you've heard about her? I was so little when she left and then it happened so suddenly for my sister and I that I really don't have a lot of memories. I've learned who she is through the investigation of trying to find her, of what kind of person she was. And what I understand is that she was a outgoing person who just wanted to get married and have a family and loved having her kids and loved to look pretty and she had her hair done every week. Just a classy lady and she was very young. She was only 24 years old. So it's interesting too that I am now twice my mother's age and have a daughter my mother's age. I just kind of wonder like what kind of things my kids picked up from her that that I don't even know, right? My mom was born and raised in Lewiston, Idaho, which is also where my father was attending school. And she was 16 years old when she started cleaning house for my father, who was a divorced 34-year-old man owned his own home. Mom came from a very good family. Grandpa was a firefighter and my grandma was a stay-at-home mom for many years. And then she started working at a bank and then also at the local potlatch, 
which is a, a big mill. It's one of the biggest employers in the Lewiston area. Grandpa being a firefighter, I believe they were a very respected family and very well-loved children. She had two sisters, one older, Vicki, and one younger, Alice, and a little brother, Thomas. So having come from a good family, it's interesting that she got a job at 16, and I don't know why she wanted to get out of the house so badly, because had it just been a job and she continued her life, she never would have gotten tangled up with my father. But she started cleaning his house, and from what I've heard from her high school friends, he was paying her really well for that and letting her borrow a Thunderbird car, letting her buy really expensive clothes and doing things, and he just kind of groomed her, which I don't like that word because obviously I'm talking about my father, but he did. He groomed her. And by the time she was 18 years old, graduating high school, they're getting married. You don't just turn 18 and then marry some guy that you don't know. They had been dating 16, 17, and 18. The minute she turned 18, they're getting it legally done and she's moving into the house. You said that he was 34 and divorced when they met. What else do you know about his life? So before he met my mother, my dad kind of had a hard start. His father died at the age of 39, and it left my grandma with these four children during the Depression in the 50s. That was very difficult. Two years after grandpa died, dad's oldest brother drowned in the river in front of the family. So he had two tragedies, one kind of back to back. And it sounds like my dad kind of turned to alcohol to numb the pain that he was having. And he had to grow up really quickly because, you know, suddenly he had to take care of the house. And he felt like he had to get married right away and support his mother. So he purchased his mother's home and got married to a 14-year-old girl when he was only 17 years old himself. That didn't work out. Him and his first wife, Joy, they divorced. And like eight years into the marriage, they divorced and then remarried again and then divorced again. So he was single in 1968 when he started dating my mom, but he hadn't really been single for very long from that marriage. How old was your mom when she started having children? So they got married. She was 18 and that was in 1970. And in 1971, my sister was born and then I was born in 1973. So a young mother, but not unusually young for that era. She was a stay-at-home mom the whole time and it wasn't up until... She left him in December of 1975, and she decided she was going to go back to school and get a degree so that she could have her own money and and support us. My father always made it sound like she was just doing it because she wanted to do something. But from what I've heard now from neighbors and friends is that she was literally telling people she's getting her degree so she can leave him. But that didn't happen because in August of 1976 is when she disappeared. So she'd only been in school for less than a year from what I understand. Do you know what she was trying to get a degree in? It was Valley Business College. So I believe it was just some kind of a secretarial degree, like an associate's degree. After being so financially dependent on her husband, she realized that if she wanted to move forward in life, that she was going to have to do that. So that doesn't sound like someone that just wants extra money to go shopping. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because when dad explained it to us, it was, oh, she's only going to college. She's only going to college just so she can meet people and socialize. It has nothing to do with getting a job. But now that I'm doing my own investigation and actually talking to friends and neighbors and you're hearing, that that doesn't even make any sense. I'm I'm not going to waste my time socializing to go to school. You, You can go out to the store and socialize, right? You have to put effort in to go to school. So she was intending to get a degree so that she could have something to support us. You said she told people that she was planning on leaving her husband. Did that include her husband? Did you tell your father that she was leaving? 
in December, she had actually left him and moved out, got her own place. So yes, he knew that she was planning to leave him. Each filed for a divorce. From what I can understand, she filed one and he filed against her. My dad wasn't wanting to pay her half of whatever he owned, right? She wanted to have full custody of his kids and was going to take part of his property. And my dad wants to counter and say, you know, you came into this marriage with nothing and you're going to leave it with nothing. And it's interesting that after she disappeared, when he filed for a divorce, he filed again. And this time said she got zero. And you know, it's crazy because he got full custody of us. He immediately took us to his, her sister's house and dropped us off. He didn't want us. He just didn't want to have to pay for us. And he didn't want her to leave. He wasn't going to let her leave. Not that easily. What happened that night was she got home from school uh, like 10 o'clock at night because she was doing night classes and she went to grandma's to pick us up. And when we got home, she put us to bed downstairs, which is unusual because our bedroom was upstairs. So it's obvious that they already knew there's going to be a fight. Put us to bed downstairs because that way we can't see and hear what's happening, right? I hear crashing and, and it's just me and Natalie. She's five and I'm three. I sneak upstairs to see what's happening and I see he hit her first. She smacks him back in the face and then he grabs her by the throat. He then like lifts her and drags her out of my way. And I run back downstairs and I tell my sister, I'm really scared. Like it's bad. I'm really scared. And she's trying to comfort me and tell me that it's going to be okay. And it just seems like you wake up and the next day is there and dad's in a big hurry to get out of there and we're leaving and he's screaming at us to get our shoes on that we have to leave. And you don't really talk about what happened. We drive across the river to his friend's house. And I remember him saying that mom's not coming back because she doesn't want to be a mother anymore. And I said, where are we going? He said, we're going to Bonnie's house. So when we showed up at Bonnie's house, I said, are you going to be my new mother? Why would I say that unless I was under the impression that I don't have a mother now. My mom doesn't want to be a mom. So I need somebody. This lady's a really nice lady. Can you please be my mom? And she's like, oh, no, I could never replace your mother. And, you know, she's moving. She's leaving to go to California. So I'm thinking, what now? Like, wow, my mom doesn't want us. And then he brings us later that day up to our mother's sister's house. That's my Aunt Alice. That's not till way later in the day. And then he tells the sister that Patty took off last night. There was a big fight and Patty took off last night and he's going to go look for her. But instead of looking for her, he goes back out to dinner with Bonnie. If this is really a jealous husband who thinks that she took off, he's going to be looking for her. He's going to be driving around, going to every possible place she could be. And he's going to be looking for her. And he didn't look for her. But we don't know this until years later when you get the police report, right? We don't know that he wasn't out looking for her. We were under the impression he was looking for her. So before he came home that night, he was at a bar with a gun trying to kill the man that he was accusing her of having an affair with. Mom comes home and he just calms down. There's no way. He went to his bed, went to sleep, accepted that they were going to have a divorce. And my mom didn't want to be a mom anymore. And that's how I grew up believing she did not want to be my mother anymore. And that's one of the hardest things out of this whole thing to accept is that I believe that my whole life. And that must have affected you and probably still affects you in so many ways. And it wasn't even true. Right. But how do you undo that? How do you undo an entire childhood of, I have the crappiest mom in the world. Like what mother just up and says, I don't want to be a mom anymore. Mine apparently, but she didn't. 
it's really impossible for a three-year-old to not internalize that and blame themselves, think that there's something wrong with me, that she would leave and comparing yourself to other people. Oh, their mom stayed. And what did I do? What did we, did we not listen? Like you start thinking like, oh man, maybe I didn't clean up my plate. I mean, the stupidest things that you're like, I'm a child. Why is my mom not coming back? And I asked for her all the way through Christmas. And then I made her a little card and put it under the tree. And when she didn't come home for Christmas, I didn't ask for her again until I was about 12 years old. I was so angry at her and I don't even want to know where she's at because there's just excuses. She don't want to be my mom. Then I don't need to be worrying about her. It's so unfortunate. You probably felt so rejected and having it be such a major holiday. It makes sense that that was like a turning point for you at that age being like, she's really not coming back if she's not going to be here for me for this. And then the really fun part about that was, so August is when she disappeared. October is when my dad gets arrested for hiring the hitman. So it's literally two months after our mom disappears that they then arrest my father and take our father away. So now Natalie and I have dad's in jail. We don't understand why. And mom is gone. So here we are three and five years old and have neither parent. Can you tell me more about the incident the night of the disappearance you said he threatened who he thought was seeing your mother with a gun my sister and I didn't learn a lot of this until we turned 18 years old to get the police report we were told by family that my mom left because she went to go start a new life and that you know maybe someday she would come back so that was the nice thing for them to say to us with our dad when he went to prison we weren't really given an, a reason why he went to prison cuz we're just so young and here having just lost another parent they would just say things like oh he made some bad choices and he'll be out shortly and you know we'll take care of you until but never really saying like he tried to kill someone he's in prison cuz he tried to kill someone he may be there for 10 years he was sentenced to 10 years and i can say i don't know what you would say to a child but i would say honesty is always the best option rather than sugarcoating something on August 31st at about 4 p.m. in the evening, and this is the night mom disappears, the Vans Club in Lewiston calls the police to report that my father's there asking for Randy. They ask him what he wants with him, and my dad lifts up his shirt, shows that he's got his pistol in his pants. He says, I got something for him. And they said, well, Randy's not here tonight. You know, we'll let him know you stopped by. And they called the police and said, Ralph's in here with a pistol looking for Randy. And they went and talked to Randy and asked why he would be looking for him. And Randy said he'd had a short-term affair with my mom and they had rekindled and been back together. So he didn't understand why now, when it had been months since they had been together. They advised Randy to get out of town, told him that, you know, my dad's kind of a loose cannon right now. Told him maybe he'd be safer if he got out of town. I believe Randy did leave town for a little while. They did rule him out as a suspect. They figured he's a completely innocent man. He came back from the military. They'd known each other from school. He's not just some crazy person who went out and killed her because he was jealous that she went back home. And then Randy just kind of disappears. We don't hear or see Randy's name again in the police report after that. So we just never really considered Randy to be a suspect. He just happened to be an innocent bystander. But it does give us insight into dad's mind on August 31st. On August 31st, he's thinking again, she's back with Randy. She's having this affair again, and I am not going to tolerate this. And if he's going to kill Randy, what stops him from hurting my mother? That was my mindset when I'm reading that. I'm like, uh, this is very clear that what I saw wasn't just him helping her outside and hiding her, which is what I told people is that he hid her. He got rid of her. He, in a fit of rage, 
accidentally or intentionally killed her and he got rid of her. He didn't just carry her out and she ran off. That's not what happened. So he's in a bar two months after mom disappears and he's in his regular old bar, not Vans, a different one, the Long Branch Saloon. And he's saying, oh, the police department, they're harassing me all the time. They're just at my door all the time asking questions, want to know where Patty is. And I'm so tired of it. I would just want to get rid of him. And the bartender says, well, if you want to get rid of him, you know, I know somebody who could help you out with that. Because the bartender is under the impression that dad really did kill Patty. The whole community really thinks he did kill her. So if they're thinking, he's serious, let's set him up and see if he wants to really kill a police officer. And my dad says, all right, bring him here. I got the money. Set it up. They literally set it up the next day. He calls the police department, says, you know, Ralph is in here, wants to hire a hitman. They send in an undercover cop to pretend to be the hitman. My dad pays this man, puts money down on it to kill Captain Ayler. Not only does he arrange to kill Captain Ayler, since he's got this hitman here from California, he's trying to arrange two other murders while he's at it. Two others. And the hitman, he's a cop. And he says at the time when he's writing his story about it, he says, I don't know if hitmen do that, if you like can do multiple hits at a time. So he's like, just one at a time, you know, we got to stick to one at a time because you don't want to get these convoluted and ruin your chance of a conviction. So he's trying to stick to just this one, make sure that Ralph gives the money, actually puts the money in his car. And now they have an attempted murder charge against him. So that's why dad was arrested for that. How much money did he give him? $250 down. He was sentenced to 10 years. How much did he serve? I believe it was just a little shorter than four years. He took the case to the Supreme Court because he had money. So he had a good attorney and he fought it and he called it entrapment because they literally set him up for a murder for hire and entrapped him. Now, viewers and everybody else will say, we do this all the time. Look at bait cars, look at prostitution. Now we can. This is what happens when you take cases to the Supreme Court and you get new legislation that says if someone's life is in danger or there's a crime being committed, the police can entrap you to get you to do this crime to reduce the risk of it occurring. So now it's legal, but my dad got it overturned and he was released in 1982, right back to Lewiston where he tried to kill the cop. Did you or your sister have much of a relationship with him when he was released? So he'd been gone all those years and we had been staying with his sister. And in that amount of time, I saw him once, one time in four years. They took us down there to the Boise State Maximum Penitentiary. And we were so excited to see our dad and spend time with him. But the relationship was purely letters and gifts, not the same of what we had had growing up. Letters and gifts is not the same as having a parent there. And it's always promises, promises that he's coming home, promises that this is going to get taken care of and that he'll be back. And he made do on his promise because he showed back up in 1982 and took us home. Did he ever get rearrested after that for anything? Yes. He brought us home in 1982, back to the house. And about a year after we had been staying with him, he was drinking really heavily, wasn't well. And he decided he couldn't take care of my sister and I. So he brought us back to his sister's house. And within a couple of months, he was picked up on a theft charge for a chainsaw, I believe it was. And he died in police custody. What year was that? And how old were you when that happened? 
1983, I was 10 and my sister was 12. My sister then was my mother and my father, right? She's everything to me. We never even had a bedroom separate. Like our bedrooms were always together. When we finally got our own bedrooms, when we were 16 and 18, we had two separate bedrooms. We had them cut a doorway between the two bedrooms so we could put our beds next to each other because I couldn't sleep without her. That's how dependent I was on her. How was your relationship with your aunts and uncles on both sides of the family? Didn't you say that your mother had two sisters? They both wanted us. My mom's sister wanted us and my dad's sister wanted us. And so they fought back and forth in court and ended up getting visitation. Dad's sister got full custody because that's what dad wanted. And then mom's sister got visitation and with grandparents visitation on the weekends. We had a good relationship growing up, but nobody was allowed to talk about my mom. So in my mind, I felt they forgot her. They have totally forgotten who my mother is. They don't mention her name because they don't say things about her. But again, that's not the truth. They weren't allowed to say anything about her. If they mentioned her, they didn't get their visits. So it was your father controlling that? Yes. It's a big low to use that to make people not bring up your own mother and essentially try to erase her from ever existing. Oh, 100% erased. 100% erased. Patty's sister tried to talk to Natalie about, did you guys see anything that happened that night? Did you hear anything? Did you whatever? And Natalie started crying. And the aunt that we were staying with then calls the attorney and says, you're not going to get him back. Because if, if the girls come back crying, then you get no visits. Do you blame them for asking? We are the one witness who was there that night. And nobody has taken the time to just sit down and say, what happened that night? What did you hear? What did you see? The time they try to ask, they get told, you will never see them again if you ask again. And now, a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks for listening to our sponsors. Now back to the show. Do you think that your father's family had an inkling or a suspicion and they were sort of in denial? Or do you think they really believed him? My father's family still supports his innocence. Even if I can prove his DNA is on a murder weapon with my mother's body, they will still support his innocence. Going back to your mindset before and after you access these case files. So you're 17 years old. You haven't seen any of this. You haven't been allowed to discuss your mother for your entire childhood, basically. What do you think about the case? And then how does that change? And how long does it take for that to change once you read those files? It's a huge case file, like thousands of pages. I don't know. I mean, we've never actually counted it out, but I probably read 10 reports. I probably read 10 reports. And within that amount of time, I'm already done. I'm like, anybody who picks this case up and looks at the first 10 pages can see it is so clear. My mother did not leave. My father never searched for her. And he did not do exactly what he said he was going to do. I'm going to go look for her. I'm going to go do this. He was always doing the exact opposite. But Natalie looked at it and her first 10 minutes of it is dad didn't die of natural causes. Our dad was 48 years old and he died in the shower of a cardiac arrest. And it is a suspicious death. And that was her focus on the case was what about our dad? They took our dad from us. And if they took dad from us, then we'll never get the answers as far as what happened to our mom. But her focus became our father's investigation. I really didn't want anything to do with that because my thought is if something happened while he was being booked and he died, I feel bad that he died at 48 years old, but he didn't die an innocent man. 
kind of divided my sister and I. Did your sister Natalie pursue this suspicion that your father was murdered? And if so, how? She went to the Idaho State Police. She got an attorney, pulled out all the stops trying to get them to open a wrongful death investigation in my father's death. The autopsy is very concerning and they can't explain why. He's missing 11 patches all over his body and his foot is degloved. And you're a nurse, so you know a cardiac arrest is not the same as a myocardial infarction. If you have heart disease and you got a big old fatty blockage in your heart and it blocks it off, there's a reason for you to die. When you have a cardiac arrest, it is when you have some kind of outside trauma or a source of something that causes an electrical imbalance and it just stops the heart, stops a healthy heart. Yeah. All it means is that your heart is no longer beating. It doesn't mean anything else. That's wild. So I'm assuming you read the autopsy. I have the photos and everything. Now that I'm a nurse and I've been a nurse for 20 years and I'm looking at it, it's like, I get it. It doesn't look right. I believe it's more suspicious that a 24-year-old mother is still missing. And it's not suspicious that my dad dies in police custody after he tries to kill their captain and gets it overturned and gets out. And then he dies in their care within an hour of being in their care. Is it really suspicious? Based off of the limited knowledge that I have, just based off of what you said, it sounds like he was being tortured. My first instinct was like a chemical substance on his skin, like peeling off his skin. We didn't think that too. But then we thought the people who did CPR on him, wouldn't everybody else have some kind of exposure to that also? It was also interesting that Clearwater is asking like, what happened to him? And they kept saying it's because he was intoxicated. I have never seen a drunk person just randomly lose a foot. So, I mean, maybe I've only been a nurse for 20 years and I just haven't had the opportunity to see that, but never have I saw a drunk person just pull off their shoe and they lose their whole foot. I don't think that's something either of us will ever see. It seems like your sister is prioritizing this and you have prioritized the unsolved disappearance of your mom. I more or less just said, when her body shows up, we'll know what happened, right? At this point, we're just waiting for her body to show up because it will. Whether he buried it or it was in the water or something, something will show up. And she would just say, you're giving up. She could be out there. And here I changed my name and everything. And she's like, mom's not even going to be able to find you. And I'm like, she is not coming back. She didn't see what I saw. She was very close to my father. She trusted him and believed him. And when he said he didn't do it, she believed him. Does she remember you telling her that you saw his hands around your mom's neck? It's written in the police report. When I told my uncle, that's why she's not coming back. And I said, I'm not coming back because I saw what my dad did to her. And he carried her out and he hit her. And she knows I said that. We talked about it. And I said, I was told it was a bad dream. I just kept seeing that same scenario play over and over again. And I just must have had a bad dream. I don't believe it was a bad dream. And after all of that, gaslighting. You must have felt somewhat vindicated to see that in writing in that report that, yes, I did say this at the time. There's actually two of them. There's another incident that I would tell people that I remember when my dad got arrested because I was in the back of a car and they would say, I just must have an active imagination because that's another thing that never happened. I was never with him when he got arrested. And I'm like, so weird. I remember being so frightened. I remember seeing the lights flashing. We were in the back of the station wagon. They arrested him and took him away. Guess what's in the police report? My dad was driving drunk with us in the car. And guess who was in the back? 
guess who had to wait on the highway for some lady who we didn't know, some complete stranger to come pick us up because they arrested him and took him away right in front of us. It really did happen. In my whole life, I was told that never happened. You were not there when he got arrested. It's because it was a different arrest. It wasn't the arrest for the attempted murder. It was the arrest for a DUI. So then you see that and I'm like, wait, if that really happened, I want to believe when somebody tells me they didn't happen. They didn't? Okay, great. That's much easier to cope with when you tell me it didn't really happen. They didn't really take my father away and I never saw him again. Sure felt real in my mind. Still feels real. The strangulation still feels real. And why would a three-year-old picture and imagine and dream something so ugly and horrific and continue to see it over and over again? I don't think she would. It must be so fuzzy now. But do you know if either of your parents noticed you looking during that encounter? Do you know if you were seen by them? In my mind, I don't recall my dad looking at me to see that I saw him. But what he said in multiple reports was, I can't believe the girls haven't ratted me out. Rat you out for what? What are you worried about me ratting you out for? On the police reports, you can see Natalie's notes. Rat him out for what? (laughs) Well, he's worried because he knows one of us saw something. And he might have just looked and saw my head running downstairs. He might have just heard something. But he knows we saw something. They're all gone now. And it's just you. But you're doing an amazing job. Just with everything that you're doing to get her name out there. You and I first talked on TikTok. And I'm grateful that that app exists because it really can connect people that otherwise wouldn't have crossed paths. How has social media fared for you when going on this journey for justice? So I was scrolling through social media one night and I found an unidentified image of a woman. And you know, you're just scrolling along and you're like, never seen her, never seen her. Because that's the whole point of looking. You're looking at these Jane Does. You're looking at the missing persons to see, does that face look familiar to me? Because if I am working with some lady who has been missing for 20 years, I want to know that, hey, I just saw that lady at work the other day. I stop because the face that I see is mine. And it is obviously mine. And I'm like, what? So I click on it and it's the Finley Creek Jane Doe. And I'm like, that's so weird. It looks just like me. A five foot three Caucasian female, white, between 15 and 24 wearing red pants and a white blouse that's my mother that's what she was wearing when she left and they perfectly just described my mother i'm mapping it out it's three hours three and a half hours from lewiston in the woods and i'm like this is my mom how how did they miss this like how did they miss a missing person who's wearing the same damn clothes exact same description and she's this close to us this doesn't make sense Thank you so much for listening to part one of our multi-part series on the disappearance of Patricia Lee Otto. Please stay tuned for next week's episode, which will be part two. If you enjoy our content, please leave a nice review and a five-star rating on your preferred podcast platform. You can also keep up with us on social media, on Instagram at True Crime Twins Podcast, and on Twitter and TikTok at True Crime Twins. Please email us with questions, comments, or case suggestions at truecrimetwinspodcast at gmail.com.